Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House, which focuses on international climate politics and the UN climate negotiations. My name is Anna Åberg. I am a research associate at Chatham House, and I am here in the podcast recording studio with my colleague, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hi there, Anna. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. Really enjoying this uh, rainy London spring. As normal. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, today we have another very interesting episode lined up for you. I did the interview and I spoke to Ambassador Patricia Espinosa Cantellano, who served as the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is also known as the UNFCCC, between July 2016 and July 2022. In this role, she headed the UN entity tasked with supporting the global response to climate change. So she was really a key figure in international climate politics during this very interesting and this very important period. In our conversation, we spoke about what Ambassador Espinosa Cantillano thinks were the key developments in the international climate negotiations and international climate politics more broadly while she was executive secretary, and what she thinks needs to happen going forward to accelerate climate action. I also asked her a bit about the role itself. What does the executive secretary of the UNFCCC actually do, and how much power does the position holder have? And I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will too. Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time to be interviewed for the Climate Briefing podcast. Thank you. Thank you for for this opportunity for me to share some thoughts with you and your audience. It's a pleasure to have you. I would like to begin by asking you to tell our listeners a bit about what the role of Executive Secretary of the UNFCCC entails. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for making that question that allows me to really share uh, with the audience uh, some comments about uh, what people at the UN Climate Change Secretariat do. And first of all, maybe I would like to say that the acronym UNFCCC stands for United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And this convention has a near universal membership. 199 countries are parties to this convention. And this is the parent treaty of the Paris Agreement, because we are all hearing a lot about the Paris Agreement, but I just wanted to put this in in context. So what's the responsibility of the Executive Secretary of UNFCCC? It is to lead the work of the secretariat, the secretariat that has the task to support this global response to climate change. Uh, And this involves, on the one hand, providing technical support to the negotiations on the international climate regime, but also fostering collaboration among governments. And at the same time, promoting climate action among businesses and other non-governmental organizations that have become a very, very relevant group that is participating in the negotiations. Thank you so much. How much power would you say that the executive secretary actually has in terms of shaping outcomes on, on climate change? It feels like the work under the convention is pretty party driven. Well, it is actually in general in the UN, the UN, of course, as um, the body that serves member states and parties on the different issues that are being addressed in the various organizations, is a body to give service to the member 
states. And this is no exception. And even I would say in the case of this uh, secretariat, which is, as we call it in the UN, a treaty-based uh, secretariat, that means the convention created the secretariat. The convention said, okay, and in order for us to be able to work all together, these 199 parties by now, we need a group of people that allow us to give continuity to the work and to guide us and provide us inputs at different levels. So it is, yes, a, indeed, a secretariat that needs to serve and needs to listen to what parties are bringing to the table. At the same time, you know, the fact that you uh, as executive secretary are not representing any particular interest and that your interest, it's very clear, your interest, your objective is to move forward the agenda. And that gives you a possibility in this very privileged position to be able to listen to all different parties. What I do a lot to me, you know, for the key for diplomacy is to listen, to listen and to try to put yourself in, in the other person's shoes. Where is that person representing that country coming from? And in that perspective, you can try to find ways of bringing all of those different interests and views together and make suggestions. And the suggestions are frequently part of informal conversations with parties where the executive secretary can call on some parties to be more open, to consider the other group's views, and all of it really with the objective of advancing in the process. So it's not that the, the executive secretary has a um, decision-making power, especially in terms of the negotiations, but it is true that the executive secretary can make a contribution in bringing the different views together. So you held the position of executive secretary between uh, July 2016 and July 2022. What do you think were the, the main developments in the UN climate negotiations and international climate politics more broadly during that period? And what were the main challenges? This was a very, very intense period uh, of time. So let me maybe uh, refer to some particular issues that I would say were some of the most significant developments. I came to this role as executive secretary just a few months after the Paris Agreement had been adopted in December 2015 in Paris. I came to the secretariat in July and we had the, the next conference in, in Marrakesh in November 2016. So I just came to the secretariat a few months before COP22 in Marrakesh, Morocco. Now, I was uh, convinced that after the adoption of the Paris Agreement, the role of the Secretariat would become even more relevant in making sure that that very important and, I would say, historical agreement could first enter into force and second, also be fully implemented. And uh, there was, first of all, a, a need to make a big efforts in order to make sure that it would enter into force. 
In fact, that was one of the most important developments. The Paris Agreement entered into force in only 11 months, which was something that even the colleagues uh, that were negotiating the agreement in Paris in December would not have imagined. But fortunately, it was possible. We were able to bring uh, the, a number of governments together and to make it happen that the agreement entered into force in less than a year. It's very rare in the multilateral system, by the way. Now, there was, uh, however, you know, a, a certain degree of uncertainty. Okay, so then what is the role of the Secretariat now? But to be uh, very clear, having an agreement doesn't serve any purpose unless you really put that agreement to work unless you implement it. So I was very convinced that the Secretariat needed to be very proactive in bringing to the attention of parties those areas where we needed to define how we would make that agreement, those agreements that were taken in Paris operational. Take an example, Paris, there was an, uh, a decision that the uh, nationally determined contributions should be updated. Okay, how exactly would that process happen? And what kind of information would governments be providing to the Secretariat? This is a kind of rules that needed to be developed. So we immediately started to work on that. At the same time, it was um, a really a moment that was very difficult because just as we were starting the conference in Marrakesh, the election took place in the U.S. And the message that we all had already heard was that the U.S. would withdraw from the agreement after the election. And that became, to me, a very important concern I then uh, started working, uh, and this is where you can see what is the capacity of the executive secretary to influence the process. I started to, to work with, with parties to join the agreement and, of course, to continue to underline how important it was that we continued working on the basis of the Paris Agreement. The fact that the world had been waiting so long for this agreement that there would be really not a justification to not follow up on the commitments that were made. Fortunately, there was not only no other country withdrew, or followed the steps by the U.S. Fortunately, the U.S. has re-entered uh, the agreement and today is part of, as always has been, of one of the main players in the negotiations. And so another really important uh, development in this process in 2017, for example, was the fact that for the first time, a small island nation presided over a conference of the parties. Fiji became president of COP17, and we managed to make it happen with an agreement with our host government, Germany. So the presidency was Fiji, but the, the venue was Germany. And that was, I think, a very successful experience. Then we had COP24 in uh, Katowice, in 2017, 
made a big, a big progress regarding the operational rules for the Paris Agreement. That was also a very important moment. That rule book began really to take shape and that gave clarity and accountability regarding the international commitments on climate action. Shortly after Katowice, I had a personal difficult situation. I was diagnosed with cancer and there's no, not a good time to, to get such, a, such news for anybody. But at the same time, I have to say that for me, my work and the fact that there was such a sense of purpose for what I was doing helped me go through that difficult phase in my life. I am very grateful for the many, many colleagues and, and friends from uh, different countries that were always on my side and willing to support me. But I chose to continue working and I'm very grateful also that I managed to do that. Of course, there were some days that I needed to stay at home, but altogether I, I managed to continue working. Sometimes I, I was able to to move around a little bit the chemotherapy sessions in order to be able to attend some of the of the meetings that were taking place. By the way, I'm now in remission and I'm I'm doing well as you can see, so I'm I'm very very grateful. And of course, that experience uh, makes you grow in so many ways. Now, going into COP25, we suddenly found out that very close to the dates of the conference, that the conference could not take place in Chile because of some uh, internal difficulties that the government was facing. And for me, what was very important is that we shouldn't change the date of the conference. I was uh, very much concerned that if we were to postpone it, then we would lose momentum. And I was really hoping that that would be the time where we could finalize the rule book for the Paris Agreement. Thanks to very generous offer from the government of Spain, we managed to maintain the dates and to really, so, so to say, transfer the conference from Santiago de Chile to Madrid. And I cannot tell you how grateful I am to so many of the colleagues in the Secretariat who made that happen. And of course, to the government of Spain and the many people that were participating there. So this happened. And just after we came back from Madrid, uh, a few months later, the pandemic started. So I was imagining if we had decided to postpone COP28, we would have gone into a very, very long period of not having the meetings. And the meetings are important, not for the meeting themselves, but the fact that they are the ones that really guide the process, that allow parties to move forward in all the many different issues that need to be addressed. And so uh, during the pandemic, uh, again, we had the challenge of finding ways to work and to move forward, even if there was no possibility to meet personally, which was difficult because, uh, you know, diplomacy and multilateralism 
relies really a lot on the personal relationships and these personal dialogues. But we managed. We managed, and like so many other people around the world, we managed to maintain movement in the process, not to have the, the big conferences, but to move forward with the working groups, with multiple workshops, with so the dialogue went on. So at the end, it was in Glasgow when we finally, of course, there was one year where we could not meet in person, but then we had the conference in Glasgow still during the pandemic, which was also a, a very important challenge because imagine we had uh, in Glasgow, we had over 30,000 participants and these under pandemic rules. So it was quite challenging. So if you would ask me, how do you assess those uh, six years? And, and I would say, yes, of course, I would have liked to make even more progress. Yes. Why? Because the challenge that we are facing climate change is so enormous and we know that we are still far behind. At the same time, I think that there is also progress that needs to be recognized. First, the fact that the Paris Agreement held. The whole process on climate change is strong and robust, and it really brings together the will of all these 199 parties. That's, you know, if you think about the, the different realities that we have in the world, we think about the island countries, we think about Europe, Africa, the Americas. So it's really a very, very big achievement. And today, today, the fact that the climate change agenda is really at the center of government policies, of corporate strategies, of in the minds of people, I think that's, that's a reason to say, you know, progress has been achieved. But of course, we are very far from where we need to be. And there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Thank you so much for that. What a fascinating period in international climate politics. And may I also just say, I'm so sorry to hear about that you need to undergo treatment from cancer and happy to hear you're in, in remission. I would actually like you to look ahead a little bit to COP28 and beyond, because as, as you mentioned, progress has been made, but we're still far behind from where we need to be. What do you see as critical for accelerating climate action going forward? And how do you think the UNFCCC process will evolve over time? First of all, I would say that the process itself, the multilateral process itself, has been really good in providing what it can provide, which is, you know, a very clear roadmap on what parties, what countries need to do. And it is also providing guidance, not only to governments, but also to non-party stakeholders, to businesses, to universities. And, you know, it is also benefiting from their participation. So the process itself, we need to be very objective and clear that the conference cannot change the reality, right? So what has been, what is uh, the big challenge now? I would say that the big challenge is the delay of many, uh, probably most governments, businesses and organizations in raising their ambition and taking decisive action to move away 
from carbon intensive practices and promote resilience in all communities. So on the side of governments, for example, we still see a tendency to privilege short-term decisions, short-term visions based on the immediate and you know, the national interests, even if they are at the expense of the longer term and universal human needs. So it is very important to go beyond this, I would say, short-sighted vision so that governments really take fully into account that it's not about me or the others. It is really about the fact that we are all being affected already, being affected by climate change and things will not get better. And even if political leaders now can say, okay, I will not be here in 2050, you know, it is important, and, and, and this is a reflection I also make for myself, that they think how they will go down in history. Will they be regarded as those who were conscious enough and really took the courageous decisions that needed to be taken? Or do they want their children and grandchildren to think, oh my God, why did he or she not react on time? On the business side, even if, if now, and I think this is a more recent development, we are seeing more, more plans and pledges coming forward. At the same time, I think that there needs to be more accountability and more willingness on their side to be transparent and to report on exactly what is it that they are doing and what is, is possible that can be done. And then there is one element that has been a big obstacle to move forward more quickly, and that is finance. Finance from all different sources. Because, you know, we, we do know that without finance, we cannot implement programs. And, and finance has not been coming forward in the way that it should. So I'm, I'm really worried about that. I think that for this upcoming conference, again, finance will be a very critical issue. There is, for example, there was a, last year in Charm, the decision taken, very important decision taken to create a fund for loss and damage. But there needs to be clarity on how that fund will not only operate, that's, that's more of a technical uh, issue, but how it will be funded. Because, you know, a fund without money doesn't really serve any purpose. So many interesting aspects there in your answer. I would like to continue talking to you for another few hours, but we are unfortunately running out of time. So in closing, I would just actually be interested to hear some of your more personal reflections, perhaps in closing on the role as executive secretary. Which parts of the job did you enjoy the most and which aspects did you find most challenging? I would say that what I enjoyed the most was the hugely learning experience that this position allowed me. First of all, for example, I had been working as a Mexican diplomat and, of course, always very much in in uh, contact with people from, from different parts of the world, but I had never been sitting in, in an office with no, almost, I mean, only later I had a Mexican colleague in my office, but one, 
and all the others were of different nationalities. And that is really a, a very interesting and important learning experience. And the same in the whole house, trying to understand their strengths, their skills, but also their backgrounds and how I, I think this is an element that makes the UN so special. The fact that it brings together all these experiences from all over the world. In the UN Climate Change Secretariat, there are colleagues from over a hundred countries. The other part that I enjoyed really a lot was this possibility of, uh, of having capacity to influence or at least to express the views to so many countries, so many representatives, high-level representatives from countries that are the decision makers. So you are there, you actually are able to be very honest, of course, and respectfully expressing the views. And then seeing that sometimes those views did have an effect was really very fulfilling. You know, the fact to, to say, okay, here is a possibility where I can make a very important contribution. And like now, I am, now that I have founded this 1.5 consultancy firm, what I want to do here is again, try to influence entities, public and private, in accelerating their actions to address climate change. Ambassador, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been a really fascinating conversation, I think. Thank you very much, Anna. I enjoyed very much as well. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back soon again with another episode. In the meantime, please feel free to listen back to previous episodes, which can be found on the Chatham House website, on Apple Podcasts, Libsyn, and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks very much. Bye.